morning. Happy Father's Day. My name is Austin Delgado. I'm the director of outreach here at Bible Fellowship. Thank you, Brian. This is my first time preaching here, so it is a privilege and an honor to be uh, with my family um, and to be used as a source of encouragement for you all. So I hope, uh, I hope it's just as impactful to you as it is for me. Um, as Pastor Bob read the passage we'll be looking at today, maybe you picked up on the main idea of, of this particular passage in Acts 1, namely on the ascension of Christ. And uh, this, particular, this particular theme or area of the Bible is so, uh, this particular event in Jesus' life is so, means so much to me, which uh, I'm, I'm sure you will see in just a few minutes. And uh, we'll have fun as we work through the text here. But Jesus' ascension into heaven is one of the most important events in history. And yet it's often one of the most overlooked. Think about it. We, we celebrate his birth on Christmas. We reflect upon his death on Good Friday. And we celebrate his resurrection on Easter. But we rarely ever celebrate the ascension of Jesus. And the ascension is so incredibly vital to the Christian life because in the same way that a power plant built to provide power to a city would be useless without a power switch. So the work of Jesus Christ on earth would be ultimately useless without the ascension. Because the ascension is the power switch which activates all that Jesus Christ did and taught on earth and sends it from heaven to earth explosively throughout the world through his spirit. It is here also in Acts 1 that the church's mission is affirmed as Jesus sends out his disciples as witnesses to his gospel, as agents of reconciliation to the world. World missions starts right here. And then the rest of the book of Acts is an account of the early church, the beginning of the church age, which is characterized by gospel advancement, discipleship, and global evangelization. And as we read through Acts, it's always so encouraging and invigorating to, to, to see the firsthand accounts, to watch the, the early church move out into the world as an unstoppable force with their overpowering love and zeal for, for the Lord and for the church and for others. They were like real-life superheroes, radically risking their lives with such joy and, and confidence for the sake of their brothers and sisters in view of their Lord and all that he's done for them. But then we close our Bibles, we look around the church in America today, and we ask, what happened? Is it all over? It can't be. What happened to all the superheroes? Where did all the love and joy and zeal for the Lord and missions go? Have we forgotten who we are? Have we forgotten our purpose? Have we forgotten the ascension? Why is it that so many Christians have, have let our duty and privilege to witness to the world 
fall to the wayside. We've, we've allowed it to, to drop to the bottom of our list of priorities. How do we get back to the cutting edge of what Jesus is doing in the world? And Acts 1 provides us with at least three focal points to fix our minds upon in order to revitalize within our hearts a passion that is the exact same to the disciples when, when Jesus ascended. The first disciples. Okay, so we'll look at three points. The clothing, the cloud, and the clock. That may not make much sense to you now, but it will, hopefully. The clothing, the cloud, the clock. We'll discuss each one of these, po- we'll discuss each one of these points as we work through the text and, um, and watch the implications unfold for each of us in our lives. So we'll start off, look with me at the first few verses, but I'm going to say a word of prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you that today we can orient our minds and hearts uh, around an event that is so incredibly important to, to our lives and to the world, and that is your ascension. We thank you that we have an ascended high prophet, priest, and king that is always um, interceding for us and stands at your right hand. And, and um, today, as we open your word and take a look at at your, your very word um, that represents this event. We pray that you're, by the power of your great spirit, you illuminate this word and impress upon our hearts this powerful message that um, we too would move out into the world as bold as lions, as bold as the original disciples. We, we commit this day to you and this message in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you read with me the first five verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So right from the start, we see Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that this is the second volume of his two-volume series that he wrote to Theophilus. Theophilus, most likely a Gentile man of nobility who was considering the claims of Jesus and the Christian faith. But what is interesting here to note is that Luke says in his first book, his gospel, it was an account of all that Jesus began to do and teach, which would imply that in his second book, the Acts, it would, it, it, it's an account of what Jesus continues to do and teach, but through the church. The next thing we see is that Christ appeared repeatedly for 40 days for the purpose of proving his resurrection to his disciples and teaching them all about the kingdom of God. He appeared to some one-on-one and to others in groups, as we see uh, portrayed in the gospel accounts. But then his appearances stopped after a period of 40 days, being a very significant number in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it was 40 years that the Israelites wandered the wilderness before they entered the Promised Land. 
It was 40 days that Jesus remained in the wilderness in preparation for his ministry. And here we have 40 days that Jesus is preparing his disciples for their kingdom ministry to the world. He was, in a sense, preparing them for ministry and life that would be driven by faith. Because soon, Jesus would no longer be with them face to face. And from the time of his ascension on, they would have to walk by faith and not by sight. The disciples were given a mission through the Spirit, but also not left to themselves. Jesus said that he, he, he promised them enablement by the Spirit to carry it out. And this leads us to our first focal point for this morning, the clothing for power. The clothing for power. So let's read these three verses. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Did you see it? Did you see the clothing? No? Good, because it's not there. But it's not there explicitly, but it is at the end of Luke's gospel in the parallel verses to this. So I want to take a look at that, and, and you can see, uh, which is incredible, because it's, it's great that we have different accounts throughout the Gospels and, and elsewhere in the Scriptures, because we get to see other hidden pieces and, fats, and facets of these ideas and, and interpretations, and we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So we look now at the end of Luke's Gospel, Last chapter, one of the last paragraphs, Jesus' last words before his ascension. Watch the parallels here. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, teaching of the kingdom of God. And said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, proof of his resurrection, and that, rep and, that rep and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, the commission. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So now we see the end of Luke's gospel. He writes, Jesus says, wait until you are clothed with power. And then at the beginning of Acts, he says, wait until you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wait till you receive power. Power for what? For extraordinary effective witness to the world. Now, to begin, in the scriptures, we see that when you first believe in Christ, when your eyes have first been illumined to the gospel, and you put your faith and your trust in Christ, then you are born again. From that moment on, you receive the, the Spirit of God who dwells with, within you forever and ever, and you are His for eternity. We also see in the scriptures that the role, we see the role of the Holy Spirit, and, and it's carried out, he carries out his ministry in, in several ways. We see that he 
convicts the world of sin and righteousness. He comforts us. He guides us in all truth. He seals us with the assurance of our faith. And he empowers us for ministry. And it's this last one that the book of Acts so boldly illustrates to us. Namely, that he clothes us with power. So, how do we get this clothing? What does it look like? Acts 1 will go to show that after the ascension, the disciples move right back to the city and they devote themselves to prayer before the Holy Spirit falls upon them and the promise is fulfilled. We see in Acts 4 that the disciples were gathered together and they were gathered in prayer. And then they were, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, which is what we'll look at in just a minute. And they went out and spoke the word of God with great boldness. Time and time again throughout the history of the church, we see that it is prayer, prayer that moves God to send his Holy Spirit in extraordinary ways to empower his people for Christ-exalting ministry. Now, I want to linger here for just a bit and look at what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, as we just saw in Acts 4. And it's very important that we examine this word because from this point on, throughout the book of Acts, we see that it's the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is the closest description to what it means to be clothed in power. In Acts 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people were saved. In Acts 4, 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke with great boldness, and the Jews were stunned. Acts 6, 10, Scripture says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and his words were irresistible. And, and it also says in that same chapter that, that he sat there, and the Jews were mocking him, and convicting him, and, and coming at him hard, and... He sat there quietly and his face shone like an angel. Acts 9.17, Paul, after his conversion, filled with the Holy Spirit, confounds the synagogues as he's proving Christ. Acts 11.24, Barnabas, filled with the Holy Spirit, teaching the word and a great many were saved, added to the Lord that day. Acts 13.9, last one, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, Cephas Lemus, struck blind by the words of Paul. What is glaring from the text as we read through Acts, is that the Holy Spirit fills us and clothes us with power for the purpose of amplifying our witness for Christ. He doesn't gift us with extraordinary spiritual giftedness to merely amuse ourselves. He gifts us with spiritual empowerment for the sake of of Christ-exalting ministry right here in the church and out in the world. In all the above texts, Christ is being proclaimed and people are being saved. Now, Paul even speaks of the filling of the Holy Spirit by, um, but lays it out as an imperative in Ephesians 5.18. He says, Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, 
Don't chase after things of this world. He's saying, chase after the love of Christ. Be so filled with the love of Christ that you literally burst forth and, and, and the love of Christ overflows you and, and drenches the lives of those around you. Now, I love this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he is an incredible British preacher from the, early, uh, from the early to mid-20th century. He's a British preacher uh, out of Westminster Chapel in London. Preached there for about 30 years. He's done some of the best work, if not the best work, on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And he presents to us, and he, he paints an illustration which shows us, it's a beautiful illustration on how the filling of the Holy Spirit is directly linked to the love of God. He says, picture a father and a son walking in a park, hand in hand. The child knows that he's the child of his father, knows that his father loves him, and he is happy in that. But then, suddenly, the father swoops the boy off his feet, holds him out into the air, and says, I love you. You are so precious to me. Brings him in, gives him a big kiss and a tight hug, and then puts the boy down. Now, the boy's capacity for emotion is about to erupt. He doesn't know what to do. He just wants to run and yell and laugh and take off. That's it, says Martin Lloyd-Jones. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Before the hug, there is love, there's joy, there's assurance, faithfulness, but oh how we could imagine that with one sweep, all of our doubts, all of our insecurities would just vanish when the love of God comes flooding through. And it's at this point that one's faith moves from belief to certainty. And we move from common churchgoer to witness. A witness unstoppable. How do you speak of our Lord to others? Often I find myself, I think being able to, to present a strong enough defense. I mean, I spend some of my extra time at the end of my nights. I like to watch when I have some, some free time. I like to watch YouTube videos of Ravi and his apologetic team engaging with fielding questions and, and watch different apologetic debates. So, so often I find myself uh, pretty able to, to I, could be, I could be real quick to, uh, to present some strong logical inferences and articulate the exclusivity of Christ and affirm the existence of God and be way off, way off. 
Why? Because it's not intellectual advocates that are going to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's witnesses. Witnesses. Those whom have seen and tasted that the Lord is really, really good. Those whom have been swooped off their feet by the grace of God. So captivated by the love of Christ, so gripped by his eternal embrace around them that when they speak of their Father in heaven, their words, like Stephen, are irresistible. And they too shine like angels in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Oh Lord, we pray that you make us a body of witnesses. The clothing for power comes through prayer. Pray that you may know of the height and the depth and the, and the length and the width of the love of Christ. Pray that you may be filled with the fullness of God, Ephesians 3 tells us. Pray that, that although you do not see him, you rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Pray that, you, that the Lord would fill you with his Holy Spirit and you will be a person who moves out into the world with great strength and great boldness. So that was the first focal point. We must not forget that the Spirit empowers us for, for mission. The next one I want to draw out of the text is that we need a cloud perspective. Look with me at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And I want to draw our attention to a few words here, namely, a cloud took him. And watch the implications unfold. But first, some Bible review. God the Father is invisible, yet he has revealed himself through history to his people. Back in the Old Testament, we read that he, that he appeared in many visible forms. When the, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, he appeared at night by pillar of fire and by day as a cloud. When Solomon built the temple and God wanted to assure his people of his presence, he came down as a cloud and filled the temple. Jesus, when he was transfigured on the mountain, a cloud came down, Scripture says, and, envelop and enveloped them. And the disciples knew that God was among them. Here, Jesus was taken. Literally, this word could also translate, the cloud received him. The same Christ who was sent by the Father to the world to redeem humanity, died for our sins, was physically resurrected, and now is going back to the Father. Jesus is now back in the presence of God. And we can't miss the difference about, or the, not difference, the importance about his reentry. This is the first time that a man is back in the presence of God. Since the last man, Adam, was expelled from God's presence. What does that mean for us? Well, think about it. When Adam was expelled from the presence of God, it resulted in our separation from God. 
Now that our high priest has ascended to God the Father and is now back in the presence of God, it resulted in our acceptance. In other words, the chasm of separation between humanity and God has been bridged. The closed gate has been open. And because our advocate, Jesus, is at the presence of God, so will his people for those who believe in him. Now, to take us one step further, however much we, we would love for Jesus to be here with us on earth to comfort us and guide us in, the, in this life, where we need him most is in heaven. Our greatest need as sinners is not for peace and joy in this life, but a sufficient defense in the courtroom of heaven against a cosmic judge who is angry and we've offended. He has uniquely crafted and designed each one of us so wonderfully, so precious that we might live in harmony with him. And yet every single one of us comes into this world with our little fists clenched and we say I don't need you I want to be the God of my own life don't you tell me what to do and he burns with offense and jealousy because he loves us but now that our high priest has been taken it has been has been has taken our sins in his death has now has was, resur was resurrected and has now ascended to the father he has pardoned our sin god's wrath is appeased and we can now be reconciled back to the father the father of fathers and we again can be beautiful in his sight and from that point on romans 8 who shall bring any charge against god's elect it is god who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was resurrected, who is now at the right hand of God and indeed interceding for us. He is right where we need him most, at the right hand of God the Father, so that when Satan convicts us, or when people convict us, or when our own hearts convict us, God is greater than our hearts. Amen? Amen? It is God who justifies. And we have an advocate who stands at the right hand of God with a pardon, our name on it, paid in full by his blood. Now, practically speaking, what does this look like? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned to death. He's in the act of being stoned to death. And right in the middle of his stoning, he cries out, Father, forgive them. What? Where did he get such peace? Where did he get such confidence, such powerful forgiveness? Well, the same passage tells us that right before he was executed, he looked up and caught a glimpse of the ascension. 
he looked up and got excited and yelled out, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. A glimpse of the ascension when he saw God and Jesus Christ his prophet, priest, and king standing at the right hand of the Father, smiling down upon him. Although on earth he was, he was condemned and spit on and despised in heaven, in heaven, because Jesus Christ was his advocate, he was ravishingly beautiful in God's eyes, and he was utterly assured of his acceptance. In other words, he had a cloud perspective. Now let me ask you, do you feel rejected? Do you feel ugly? Do you feel despised, condemned, maybe hopeless? Are you a Christian? Have you embraced the ascension to the degree that we believe that Jesus Christ is our advocate standing at the right hand of God, is interceding for us, and that we are perfect in his sight to the degree that you believe that, you will move out into the world with peace, with utmost confidence, and utmost assurance. You see the significance of having a cloud perspective don't allow your life circumstances to dictate your affirmation and your assurance. Fix your minds on that which is true and pure and just and worthy to be praised. Fix your minds on that which is, which is from above, where Christ is, for you are, for you are dead, for you died and your life is, is now hidden with Christ in God. So we've examined two focal points to fix our minds on in order to ignite within our hearts a passion and zeal for the Lord and his work in the world. The clothing for power, the cloud perspective, and lastly, the clock that presses. Let's look at the last few verses. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold... Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This Jesus, the original, the original word here literally means this same Jesus. In other words, the eternal Son, possessing both human and divine natures, both fully man and fully God, will come back in the same way. The same cloud that took him from heaven, took him from their sight, the same cloud that took him from their sight will be his chariot when he comes back again. And how do we know that? Because he tells us so himself. In Luke 21, he says, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. That's his second coming. Except this time, it will be no private matter. Because at the time of the ascension, only his disciples saw him ascend. But when he comes back, Scripture tells us, every eye will see Every eye on earth 
It will be like flashes of lightning from one end of the sky to the other. Everyone will know. And he will return with millions of holy ones. We have hope. We can be assured that he is coming back, that he will make all things new, that, he will, that justice will be served throughout the earth, and that peace will be ushered into the world forever and ever. Amen? Now, don't miss the important point here. This same Jesus who we saw, who you saw depart, will come back in the same way. He will come back. The same one you saw him depart will come back. That's the time frame. Christ ascends. The Holy Spirit descends at the Pentecost. The church moves out in world mission as witnesses. And Christ returns. End of story. Family, we're still here. Jesus has not come back yet. We live in an age of witness. We live in an age of testimony, an age of spiritual giftedness and gospel advancement. The clock is ticking. You have seen him go. You will see him come. Until then, the Spirit comes and you must go into the world for Christ. This is why the two men, most likely angels, we, we, we know that because they're, uh, of their attire dressed in white robes, their authority that they speak in, Luke's, um, Luke's uh, presentation of angels throughout all the major events in Christ's life and his accounts. The two men, the two angels, gave the apostles a gentle rebuke. Men why are you standing there, gazing into the sky? The last thing that Jesus said on earth was a commission. Go, you will be my witnesses, not stargazers. And they said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? No, 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 no. You will be my witnesses. In other words, will you? No, no, no. Will you? You see, Jesus continues his teaching ministry and kingdom advancement through us. We are his mouthpieces. If you are a Christian and you tell someone about Christ, they hear the voice of Jesus through you. In Luke 10, when Jesus is sending out the 72, he tells them, the one who hears you hears me. And Tim Keller, uh, a prominent pastor in, in New York City at Redeemer Presbyterian, he says that this truth, that we are his representatives, should humble us to the ground. That, that, our, that Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest and king, chooses us, imperfect, corrupt, flawed, foolish people, to be his hands and feet, bearing his name carrying his liberating gospel message to the world. It's mind-blowing when you think about it. Six years ago today, I was a street thug. I was a criminal, a con artist, drug addict, 
I spent 26 years of my life living in utter debauchery and rebellion. If I told you stories about the man with the mic, you would be appalled. And yet, then came a day where up went his scepter, down came my walls, and he said, I choose you. You will be my mouthpiece. <laughs> me? Me? I, I'm nobody. I can't look at me. I'm the lowest of low. I'm below the lowest of lows. Yes. Come. You will be my representative. Family, when you have been rocked by the grace of God, by the love of Christ, when your eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel, you can't help but to go into mission and tell others. Salvation is meant to be shared. Keller goes on to say, if Jesus wasn't ashamed to identify with us, despite our idiocies and inconsistencies and foolishness, well then, we shouldn't be ashamed to identify with one another. Ever. Nobody has had their reputation manhandled more than Jesus Christ. And it's so true. We need to stop writing each other off. Once we, once we look around the church and observe each other and, and, and pinpoint flaws and inconsistencies in each other or with the church, we need to stop writing each other off. We, we, we should be so incredibly humble that although he was, he was despised and rejected, he chose to identify with us, although we were his enemies. This should humble us to the ground we should be so patient with one another, bearing his name together as we move out alongside one another as witnesses for his great namesake. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord, his second coming, will come like a thief, unexpected. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be but in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening, that is, quickening the day of God, the coming day. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep, Paul says, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The clock is pressing. Have we appropriated that truth? There should be a sense of urgency in this life. Do you know, I can't even begin to tell you how many young adults, college students, Christians, who I've spoken to with over the last few years, who spend their days living the, sa living the, uh, the same secular college life as everybody else. No difference. Why? Because they tell me themselves, well, 
you know, it's just kind of, this is the phase that I'm in. This is what we do during college time. Then after college, when I get a job and have a family, then I'll come back to the Lord. Then I'll really be able to move out as a Christian and, and, and fulfill what he's called me to. What? Who told you that you have plenty of time? That you can just live, and live your life as you want to. Come and go. Fine-tune your Christianity how you deem fit. Because you have plenty of time. The sad part is, many of our older generations are sitting here probably today saying, right now, saying, oh, this younger generation, what's wrong with them? This younger generation, they're just way off. Well, guess what? They didn't just wake up off. They learned it. That's as far as I'm going to go. I, that's as far as I'm going to go. I came, I, I came, I love you all. I came to encourage you, not battle, okay? So, but it's important. I mean, tell me afterward, if, is that not reality? I'm so, I, it's just what I'm observing. What are your priorities? What do you think about most? What is your motive? What is your, 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 your driving force? Whatever it is, we must rearrange our priorities so that Christ and his priorities take precedence in our lives and become our primary attention. Or if you don't, well, you'll be left standing, stargazing. How much time do you devote to prayer? How much time do we devote to the word, so that we can know our God more fully and love him most deeply. How, much, how many people are we discipling? How many non-believers are you friends with? When was the last time you invited a non-believer over to your home for dinner? When was the last time you invited one of our church members, our family members over to your home for dinner? We must rearrange our priorities and put Christ where he belongs. And I'm going to end where I began. The ascension of Christ calls for action from the church. The ascension of Christ calls for action from the church. This is why we at Bible Fellowship have been striving to effectively engage our church in missions from the Advancing the Gospel Project to exploring the church plant in Trenton right now to strengthening and, and, and adding our uh, local and global ministry partners. There is ample opportunities and avenues for all of us to engage the world as witnesses, not to mention just our own personal lives and networks. And when you strive to be filled with the Holy Spirit, when you long to be filled by the love of Christ, to be clothed with power, when you maintain a cloud perspective of your high prophet, priest, and king, standing at the right hand of God, your personal advocate, interceding on behalf of you, when you acknowledge the clock that presses in this age that we live in, you will become a person who moves out into the world with strength and power with love and humility, with glory and honor.
And on that day, you can be confident that you will hear the words, Come, you who are blessed, come and inherit the kingdom that my Father has prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these great truths. We thank you that you provide us your word, that we might know you, that we may know ourselves in view of of who you are and and your love for us, and um, that we may know where we stand in in this age, in your your story of, of redemption for the world. Father, I pray that by the power of your great spirit, you, you invigorate our hearts, revitalize our hearts, that we too would move out as fierce as the original disciples, as fierce as, uh, and bold as lions, Father. And I pray that it begins right here in the church, that you use us in extraordinary ways to equip and empower each other, and that we move out into the world as, as powerful witnesses for your kingdom. Father, I pray for those who are sitting among us who might have heard the gospel for the first time this morning, or those who who have recently been considering the claims of Jesus Christ, hearing words of your gospel message for our sake, and, and are back again and have heard as much as they possibly can about the gospel and its implications in their lives this morning, enough that all the enough that they need. Father, I pray that for those of us this morning that, are, that, that have come to hear your gospel, I pray that you would awaken faith in our hearts, help, help illuminate our, uh, the eyes of our hearts that we would see the riches of your glory and cling to it. I pray for those uh, among us that don't, come, that don't know you, that, that, are don't, that don't, aren't 100% assured that they will be with you in heaven, ruling and reigning alongside you forever and ever. I pray for them this morning that you would awaken faith and for us all that you would strengthen our faith by the power of your great spirit for for your great name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. And if you are considering these things and this may be the first time you ever heard the gospel laid out and its implication in our lives, I'll be standing in the back. We have pastors all around, ushers. Please come, come talk to us and we'll be able to guide you. Happy Father's Day.